Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 264. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here this week to review and discuss the Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. This is the final film in the epic spectacular that is the Chronicles of Narnia series, and I am just thrilled that I didn't call it the Dawn Trader because I kept writing Dawn Trader as I was writing the plot out. Don't ask me why. I don't know what it is about this title, but I was the exact same way. I had to retrain my brain to learn what the real title is. Because I think the word Treader is just not one that kind of like comes naturally to you. And I think with the thumbnail on Disney Plus having the ship, you're thinking ship trade. Yeah. I don't I, I don't know. Maybe that's just how my brain works. But no, I was I was the exact same. So this is the first time that I have watched this film. And I believe, if I remember correctly, I think this was the first time that you watched this film as well. Correct. I thought I had seen the trilogy, but clearly I gave up after the second one because I would have 1,000% remembered Will Poulter. Yeah, and, and I'm very interested to see how our review of this film stacks up against the others because, as I think we kind of went through last week, Disney had the rights to the franchise. After the second film, th they and Walden could not come to agreement on a budget. Disney wanted to go cheaper with the effects, <laughs> incredibly. Walton <laughs> said no. So Disney gave up the rights to Fox and then reacquired them after the fact. So, like, I'm very interested to see a lot of the issues that we had with the first two films. The special effects, the runtime, uh, the pacing. How much of that is addressed and or adjusted now that Fox has their hands on it, at least, you know, at the time that they released this film. Um, but of course, Disney got it back. So here we are. Where does this stack up in the trilogy? Do any of those shortcomings get fixed? Was Walden correct in changing the distributor to get away from what they obviously considered bargain basement special effects. That, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by Fierce Fox Co., designers of handmade silkscreen shirts. Fierce Fox has a t-shirt, tank top, hoodie, or crew neck for every fandom. So whether it's the movies or theme parks, princesses or villains, the MCU or Star Wars, everyone will find something they love. The designs range from subtle quotes from our favorite films to iconic characters we can wear proudly in so many different styles, such as sketchbook and concert Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 20% discount using the code Monoreal at checkout. Visit FierceFoxDesignCo.com to check out all of the collections. In Cambridge, Edmund struggles with not being able to help in the war while Lucy deals with the struggles of becoming a young woman, all while Susan and Peter live in the U.S. with their parents. <clears throat> Edmund and Susan, or Edmund and Lucy, excuse me, uh, are living with their unsupportive cousin, Eustace. When a painting of the sea comes to life, it fills their room with water. The three are sucked under the surface and then swim to the surface where they are rescued by Caspian on the Dawn Treader. And we are back in Narnia, of course. 
Caspian, is headed for the Lone Islands to rescue the seven lords of Narnia, followers of his father who had been cast out by his evil uncle, and invites the three to join. When they reach land, Lucy and Eustace are captured and sold as slaves. Anyone unsold is sacrificed to the Green Mist. Edmund and Caspian are meanwhile thrown in a dungeon where they meet one of the Lost Lords. The crew of the Dawn Treader rescue them, and Caspian gets one of the seven swords given to the Lords by Aslan. They continue on their journey to rescue the other lords while Edmund works to restore the sword. While on another island, Lucy is kidnapped by the invisible Duffelpuds and is brought to the house of Koreakian. Uh, I, I, I knew I was going to do it and I wanted to say Clayakin this whole time. <laughs> Koreakin to use a invisibility spell to make the Duffelpuds visible again. She reads a beauty spell and sees herself as Susan, so she tears the page out, and here's Aslan call her name. What? I'm so sorry, because Clay Aiken's song is invisible. That was his biggest hit, and it's the invisible. I'm sorry. I don't think that that's, like, what was in your head and why you're thinking Clay Aiken No, I promise it, but... I couldn't tell you that that was Clay Aiken's biggest hit. No, it's just, like the perfect trip up for you. So with all of that being said, she reads the visibility spell exposing the less than intimidating duffel puds as well as Corey Aiken, who <laughs> turns them invisible to protect them from the mist and what lies behind it. That's what he tells us. Um, he tells them that they will be tested, but to beat the mist, they must lay the swords at Aslan's table. After an unfruitful two weeks at sea, Lucy recites the beauty spell again and sees a world where she is in fact Susan, and Narnia nor herself ever really exist. Aslan visits her and exposes the mistake her self-doubt has caused. She awakens back on the ship and burns the spell as the green mist invades. We see the White Witch try again to recruit Edmund before he too awakens. They finally find the land that they are seeking and explore a third island where they find a sword in a pool that turns everything it touches into gold except for the sword itself. Edmund becomes tempted by the gold while Eustace begins to collect some for himself. However, the mist curses him, turning him into a dragon unbeknownst to the crew until Eustace literally spells it out for Edmund. Eustace befriends Reepicheep, and helps guide the crew to Aslan's table on Ramandu's island. Three of the Lost Lords are sleeping there, and they see that they are one sword shy. A star from the sky turns into Liliandil and tells them the Lords will awaken when all is made right. She points them to the Dark Island where the mist as well as the seventh sword lay. They head to the Dark Island, where they find the last lord. The island turns Edmund's fear into a sea serpent, which attacks the ship. The final lord, in a panic, injures Eustace with the final sword as he fights the serpent, causing him to fly away and crash injured. As the crew fights to... Uh, as the crew fights the serpent, Aslan arrives to transform Eustace back into human form as a thanks for his sacrifice. 
He then sends him back to Ramandu's Island with the final sword. However, the mist fights him as he tries to place the seventh sword on the table. He does, however, lay the sword down as Edmund defeats the serpent. With the mist gone, all of those sacrificed to the mist have returned as the lords awaken. Aslan appears before a large wave and tells them that his country lies beyond. He tells them if, if they go there, they cannot return. Reepicheep lays down his sword and enters the wave while Edmund and Lucy decide to go home. Aslan tells them that they will not return to Narnia. However... He will be in the world by another name, keeping an eye on them. He also tells Eustace that he may have use for him in the future. So here's the funny thing. Laugh breaks aside, this was the most convoluted plot to write. It was the most convoluted plot to read. However, it's the easiest plot to follow and it's the film with the shortest running time. I have been praying for the last two weeks to shed 20 minutes to a half an hour off the runtime of this film. Hallelujah. We get that in the Dawn Treader. Well, for what it's worth, you did very well with that plot with all the names. No thanks to me. These names, I, I got to be honest with you. I'm I'm, I'm just going to go out there and say I hate doing plots like this because the... Dufflepuff and Ribblefrip and bu like these. It, it feels like you're watching Lord of the Rings. Yep. Here's the reason why I don't watch Lord <laughs> of the Rings. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I want to start off by answering your last question with regards to the bargain basement special effects. I do love that phrase. I, th I think we're going to adopt that one moving forward because that's a really great way to put it. Um, this opening shot here. With oh. the credits. <laughs> oh, my Lord. I've seen more convincing buildings in The Sims. Honestly, I as soon as the movie started, I was like, no, no. Yeah. I did my best. I was doing my best Tom Hanks. No, no. <laughs> that, was, that was what I was thinking as soon as we get the opening shot of, is it a castle? Is it a church i don't is it a know, fort i don't know what it is all i know is that it looks like something out of ps2 and i was like no not again not again but without spoiling too much that effect is god awful the rest of the effects i think for the rest of the film are much better than that opening shot and much better than most of what we saw come from the Disney budget. So I'm not sure why this looks as bad as it does because the rest of the film is vastly improved. I would agree with that. They're not great, but significantly improved from Caspian and good Lord. I mean, it's not easy to beat how bad this shot is, but at least they recover from it. Um. So we get to the uncle's house. Yeah. Um, and we see Eustace being pretty much, well, no, because Edmund wasn't this vindictive. He was annoying and he completely lost us in the first film in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But Edmund was never this bad. Eustace is being so hostile towards his cousins. I feel like we don't necessarily need the voiceover to explain 
his POV and how annoyed he is by their presence. But this added humor is the element that I never realized was missing from these films. Yeah. I'm just going to throw this out here. Will Poulter is brilliant in this role, and he brings a lightheartedness. And you've seen these characters before. You you typically see them in adventure films in horror, and in horror films where you have some uppity-up that doesn't really want to be on the voyage, right? Um, the Brother in the Mummy is a great example. Um, we saw it again in Jungle Cruise. was very much this, basically the same character from The Mummy. Um, Anaconda. You see that character in Anaconda. Of course, he doesn't make it to the end of the film. But there's always this kind of reluctant character that doesn't want to be there. And I don't like insects. And get this away from me. And I want to play tennis. Like, it should be beaten to death. But they did it so well here that I totally excuse it. Yeah, it's not even... In the case of like a Riley Poole in National Treasure where he's along for the ride and he's just happy with his role as a sidekick. This is the complete antithesis where they don't want to be there. They're a great foil to the main characters. You know they're going to get their comeuppance. And for all of those tropes, it's just so well done here. Writing and performance wise, it it just hits on all cylinders. Um, I think... Other than the introduction to Eustace, this is a pretty good reset with Susan's letter. I would have just liked a little bit more of an explanation as to why the family is still split apart. I like that we get confirmation that dad's okay and they follow up with that. And um, we're not still left wondering like we are in the second one, what's happening to the family. Um, Susan does explain that he's with the consulate, but it kind of seems like for financial reasons that's still why Edmund and Lucy are left behind and that just doesn't really make a lot of sense aside from the fact that you haven't told us explicitly I just feel like that's not enough of a reason this is also the family that gave up their kids for a time to send them to the English countryside to keep them safe for the war. Now you have an opportunity to keep your family together and leave a place that's actively being bombed. Exactly. Eh, Stay in Cambridge. That's where it doesn't make much sense. And we don't get an explanation as to why it happens. And why you're no longer with the professor. I mean, I guess the argument would be keep them with family. And that's better than having them at a stranger's house. and, And maybe, you know, the idea is that you don't want to be a burden on this professor anymore, but it's no longer four kids. It's down to two. And they did develop a special relationship with this professor. So it's not like he is a perfect stranger anymore. It's really just um, his, his housekeeper that there Mrs. was an McCready. issue. With. Yes. I couldn't remember her name. Thank you, Mrs. McCready. Um, but they don't address any of that. Like it could have yeah. been a simple throwaway line. Like Edmund saying, you know, it stinks that we have to deal with Eustace, but thank God we're not with Mrs. McCready anymore. Done. The other thing, and I understand that if they went this route, you'd have literally no story because they would have never gotten to the wardrobe. But if they had family to send them to the entire time, why didn't they do it? Exactly. Also that. It just doesn't... That's the bigger thing. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Um, what I also bump on with this reset is... This turn that Lucy is taking. Yes. Yes. It's like you copied my notes. 
which is funny because we didn't watch this together. Well, no, the first time we didn't watch it together. The second time, this has been a rare occasion where we actually got to do the second viewing together. But never spoke about it. Yeah, no. Um, I don't think that Vanity is a good look for Lucy. No. And I feel like this is such a weak way of developing her into her womanhood. Even though you could argue that she's grown up without her mother. So she wants to be just like her older sister because that's the example that she's had. And now Susan's got this life where she's writing about, I'm being taken out by this, I think a soldier or something. I, I don't know. She's, she's being, she's being courted. Exactly. And she's also older and is of age to be courted by a soldier. Exactly. So I can see Lucy getting into the mindset of like, you know, she's no longer a kid. She's a tween. And, I can't wait until I have this one day, but they just hit fast forward way too much because there's a difference between looking up to your older sister and this storyline that they're giving her where she's ready to step into Susan's shoes and, um, you know, she's just trying to be way more mature than she actually is. And I feel like there were just so many different ways we could have had Lucy grow here that didn't involve um, alluding to getting into romance and not that she's even boy crazy, but it's, it's the vanity aspect of it. You can look up to Susan, but why did it have to be I want to be beautiful like her. I want to look like her. She's harping on. She asked Edmund at one point, do I look like her? Why couldn't it be? I wish I was as good of a leader as Susan. I wish I could fight like Susan, especially because that's, you know, kind of the biggest part of their character arcs is who they are as themselves in the real world and who they are in Narnia. And Lucy Never, except for the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where they show the time jump at the end, we've still seen Lucy really just as a child, where all she's been able to contribute is the healing potion. It would have been so nice to see what happens now that she doesn't have her older siblings to look up to. It's just Edmund. Now they have to be the adults in Narnia and they have to make decisions without their older siblings and see her grow into her role that way instead of getting stuck on tucking her hair behind her ear. Yeah, this obsession, because that's how it comes off as yes. an obsession. Yes. It comes out of nowhere. Never in any of the other films is this alluded to. There's never a rivalry between the two of them. In a fact, jealousy. The two, nothing. This came out of nowhere. Now, perhaps in the book, which I did not read, admittedly, maybe this is something that's a through line that they slowly develop, which you can do in a book. Sometimes that's harder to do in a movie. But figure out a way to do it in the movie. Instead, they rush this narrative as if we've seen this before. And frankly, when we did Summer Magic... When Lou Mangello came on and did Summer Magic with us, we talked about how much we loved that movie, how much we loved that music. But the one thing that was a little cringy was the Sherman Brothers, who we absolutely love. Pink sing of Perfection. Yeah. Singing a song telling a young woman about how to be feminine. And it's a harmless song, but some of the lyrics are very dated. 
And I think you can kind of forgive it because it was a film made in the 60s about turn of the century. So, like, it's dated upon dated, I think sort of intentionally. But still, when we saw that, we were like... Not the best way of taking a character and turning them feminine and having them grow up. Somehow, this is worse. Because it does a disservice to the character and, and what they stand for. You know, these kids have been forced to be brave in traumatic situations. And now this is Lucy's time to really step up into her own it could have been such an interesting coming-of-age story, and they squandered it. Yeah, because this comes off more like, eh, puberty, you get it. Yes, exactly. What I think they did do right, though, is now Edmund has to be the adult in this relationship with Eustace and be the mature one. And that's yes. a good push for his character. It is a good push for his character, and something that they did so successfully here is they made Eustace an antagonist without making him dislikable. Yes. You don't like him, but you secretly love him. You love to hate him. Correct. They didn't do that well at all with Edmund in the first film. Exactly. And I think even in the second film, they didn't really do a lot to improve on that. I think this was their opportunity to hit the reset button, and I think they did it fairly well here but you're right i i like that dynamic in that relationship another thing that they did really well and this is where they redeem themselves on the visual effects yes this painting coming to life oh. is fantastic perfect blend of practical and vfx um i don't know how they did it honestly i mean i don't know because there is nothing to be found on these films as far as behind the scenes uh, featurettes, nothing on Disney Plus, nothing anywhere that I could find. Um, but this was truly incredible how they got the painting off the wall while it's gushing water. Um, the room filling up, the whole thing. It, it just looked great. I love the look of it. I love the build and the set of the Dawn Treader. The minute we get there, how did Disney lose the pirate one? How did Disney lose the pirate story? Yeah. Of all of the Narnia movies, of all of the ones that you could lose, how did they lose the pirate one? And why would you why would you go cheap with the pirate one? I can't for the life of me figure it out. That was the like as soon as I saw that that's where this was going, I I said I how how did you lose this one? I understand the second film underperformed at the box office and you really wanted to slash budget, which is comical in and of itself, but I cannot believe that of all of the ones that they're going to lose, because this is still coming out of the wave, the major hype that was Pirates of the Caribbean. This, of all of them, should have been the one that was in their wheelhouse. Well... Maybe that's why they didn't care about this one so much because they had their pirate films. It's been pirate mania for years at this point. So maybe they felt like they didn't need another one. Maybe they were afraid of the box office because they felt like everybody was going to have the attitude of we've seen Disney do a pirate movie. I want something new. And maybe that's why they were treating it as, you know, let's just cut our losses with it and, and not incur the potential to for a box office fail. 
Where I do think it is a miss, though, is that part of the reason Pirates is so successful is because it's so realistic. And that comes from the incredible set builds that they did for the ships. You lose that entirely here because the ship looks pretty bad to me in the wides and the CGI is really not that great. I mean, they they did the most minimal minimal set build for this ship just so that you could shoot the close-ups and have your actors stand on it. But otherwise, um, I don't think that it looks good at all. Um, what I do like about it, though, is that um, I like Caspian's role because... He's definitely playing more of a captain now than he is a king. So I think it's good to have that sort of a differential between what the Pavensi kids were doing during their rule versus how he's learning to navigate his role without his father to learn from. Um, so I like that we get Caspian out of the gate. Um, I definitely think it gives more levity to the second film because if we would have just had this character show up out of nowhere it really would have felt very random um especially with regard to his relationship to Edmund and Lucy I love the camaraderie between Caspian and Edmund here it's very good character development but something that I think was a miss here is that it's inconceivable to me that two kings would be captured and a queen would be sold into slavery people know who they are. Everyone knows who they are. Right. Eustace getting sold and us needing to rescue him, that I totally buy. But how they enslave a queen and capture two kings, that I just couldn't get past. Especially because you could argue they got away with it in the second one because of the time jump with the hundred or so years that they haven't been in Narnia. The tables have completely turned you know, no one recognizes them as royalty anymore. Um, here, it doesn't seem like there's any time jump at all. And I think we're supposed to take that cue from Caspian. It, it's maybe only a year or so, um, you know, because that's the thing. You also, you see Lucy and Edmund that they've grown, but at this age, it's not like when you're a kid kid and a couple of years or, or a year passes and it looks like it's 10 years because kids grow so much faster. Now that they're in that tween teen age, they don't look that much older than they did since we last saw them. Um, so I think really the only kind of time frame we're given is just based on Caspian and, and what he's accomplished so far. Um, so you're right. It, it doesn't really make sense that nobody is recognizing them and they would just capture them. Although I do like that we got the auction scene that Pirates was afraid to do. Um, the other missed opportunity, I think, was that you have Eustace, who you don't like. I mean, him and Edmund are still at each other's throats. Yeah. And the way that they start off this capture is that Eustace has a knife at his throat. Why is Edmund not using him as a bargaining chip to get information on why these people are capturing them? Um, Eustace has done nothing to earn Ed and Lucy's loyalty, even though he's family. And that's why, you know, Edmund does do the right thing. He's just looking at this as simply as it's family. I'm not going to let him be threatened. But 
Eustace has done nothing for you. It's not just that you don't get along. He's gone out of his way to be unkind to you. So why not take the attitude of, I don't care. You could do whatever you want to him. It means nothing to me. Kind of like how actually, well, maybe because it would be a retread of pirates because Jack sort of does this when Will Turner is captured by Barbosa right. and he's kind of like, oh, not my friend. Yeah. A missed opportunity and a big tonal shift here because up to this point in the film, and that's a lot of this is going to change in the next 15 or 20 minutes of screen time. This is this this is not fantastical at all. This feels more like a pirate movie, like a swashbuckling pirate film. So a lot of that whimsy that you had in the first two Narnia films, that's very much out the window for the first 20 minutes to a half an hour of screen time here. It feels like a completely different series, actually. Agreed. Um, but I think that this is where the dialogue through the diary with uh, Eustace, you're, you're starting to hear a lot more of it. I think that it's a good means of fleshing him out more as a character and also driving the story forward because we are going to get to a point where we don't really know the timeline. We know that they've at least been a few weeks at sea because we're told later that they are sailing for two weeks and they're running out of rations and all of that. Mm -hmm. But we don't really have a clear timeline. So I think that that works very well. Speaking of the rations, I love how Reap turns the orange theft into a lesson and totally takes Eustace under his wing when he's been cast out by everyone else. I agree. And I, I love the relationship that forms between the two of them because that's only going to get better. Correct. Duffel puds. Ugh. This side plot to me, it seems out of place. It seems forced. And I feel like they tied it all together very nicely once they incorporated the mist. But I felt like they were trying to force Harry Potter here. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because there's so many parallels too, right? Like they have to get the seven swords. There's seven Horcruxes in Harry Potter. Yeah. I, I don't know. Again, I'm not familiar enough with the source material um, to know if that's something that they left in to keep the integrity of the book. Um, but it's just interesting that this is around the same time as Harry Potter and you need seven of the things. So, um, yeah, th this whole scene, I feel like we could have done without. And I feel like the only purpose was to um, have another beat with Lucy's obsession with Susan. Because when she opens the book of incantations, um, that was actually kind of funny. They captured her and they needed her to do it because they can't read. Simply because they can't read. They just need someone who can. Yeah. Um, but the first spell that she reads is for snow. You don't tie that back to the White Witch at all? And, like, why would Lucy even do that? Wouldn't she be of afraid, afraid of a spell that casts an eternal winter when that's what, you know, that's how she found Narnia in the first place? Yeah, that's they had to save them from that endless winter. You do this to Mr. Tumnus? 
After what he did for you? Who we never see again. Never see him, never hear from him. Now, again, we, we do have like the 1500 year jump. And they did address it in the second one. They did say that, that everyone we know is gone. I just wish that we would have somehow seen some of these characters again. I mean, you clearly can do whatever you want. Right. Or if you're casting this snow spell, wouldn't it be cool if like something took the shape of Mr. Tumnus? Or like if there was a scar or the lamppost, just give me like a wink and a nod here to the most charming character in this whole trilogy. Um, But here's the other thing. This Susan obsession, it really holds no water when the actresses look so much alike to begin with. Because when they morph Lucy into Susan, it it happens so naturally. I, I think, I mean, it's a testament to the casting because they did cast two actresses who I fully believe are siblings because they look so much alike. But Lucy's sitting here going, I don't look like Susan. I don't look like Susan. Yes, you do. She's got darker hair. And, and her eyes are blue, but otherwise you couldn't look more like her. They use this as a means to have a commentary on mistakes you make when you don't believe in yourself. When you doubt yourself, when you put yourself in a corner. I think the message is overall very good. And I do believe that Aslan is going to want to send that message to Lucy because of the very special bond that they have, but it doesn't change the fact that this entire thing makes no sense and seems forced. Because at the end of the day, there's, I don't think, any payoff. Right. It's not a part of Lucy's character arc. If it is, it's lame. And it doesn't really do anything in pushing any of her actions at the end of the movie. So it's just kind of a means of being like, believe in yourself. And the White Witch. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, the whole thing just seems there for convenience. You, you had to tell a story of puberty, except you didn't. You had to tell a story of believing in yourself, which you didn't have to, because you've already done that for the first two films. Lucy has a better character arc as a nine-year-old than she does as a character through the entirety of this franchise. And spoiler alert, I don't think Edmund has a character arc at all. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. If there's any problem I have with the distribution being handed from one studio to the other, it's that this film almost feels like they didn't know what to do with the characters from the first two films. Because ironically, you've lost the most beautiful thing about Lucy's character, which is her unfailing faith. Yes. There's absolutely nothing that alludes to that in this film other than like she sees Aslan, but that's the thing. Like she sees him. It's not about believing that he's there, even though she doesn't see him. Um, And there was just so much more that you could have done with her coming of age. Like, for example, we see her sword fighting. Where'd she learn that? Did Ed teach her? Did Peter? I would have much rather have seen a storyline where she has to ask Edmund, like, can you teach me how to fight? Because I was so young 
the last time we were here, you guys left me behind. I don't know what to do. And, you know, I've been captured. I don't want that to happen again. Or even if it wasn't Edmund, like Reap teaching her how to fight would be great. And instead, I mean, as funny as it is and as nice as it is to see the relationship, we do get Reap teaching Edmund. But Lucy had to learn from somewhere and we don't ever see that. The only thing that this does um, is set up the idea that they're going to be tempted. And I think they probably should have shuffled the scenes around a little bit and had her read the incantation after she's already seen Aslan, who warns them that they're going to be tempted because this was her first temptation. The next one, we see Edmund tempted uh, by the gold in the Midas pool. Right. And then we see Eustace fall for it completely. Which is on brand, which makes sense for Eustace. And you have the White Witch is coming back. This is one of the last points of the film where the CGI is really bad, I think. Like, in this case, it is really bad. But she comes back, she's tempting Edmund again. And then Edmund is tempted by the pool. And he wants the gold because if they have the gold, they who have the gold have the power, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And he's determined on taking things out of Narnia, which you cannot do. And Caspian gets in the middle of it and says, I will stop you. I'm paraphrasing. And they fight. Briefly. This is my big problem here. You're either going to turn Edmund bad or you're going to turn Edmund good. And you don't commit one way or the other. That's why this character doesn't have a character arc. He is no better off or worse off when this film ends versus where the first film began. And that's such a missed opportunity too because he's on his own without Peter. It would have been really interesting to see what he does now without his older brother's guidance. Well guidance really or threats because in the second film it was peter's guidance that kept him on the straight and narrow in the first one without peter trying to keep him in line he did fall to temptation so it would be really interesting and a great payoff to see what happens now that he's seen both sides of it what is the lesson that you learn which side do you want to be on edmund even though this is edmund's temptation I think the fight between him and Caspian escalated far too quickly. Um, And I would have liked more room for it to breathe because Edmund does want to, as you said, take the gold out of Narnia. This is where we get a little bit of context as to what the family is dealing with and why the kids are still split up. Because clearly Edmund is worried about the financial. And I would have liked to hear more about that instead of, seeing Caspian draw swords immediately. And then Lucy's the one who jumps in and stops them. Okay, great. That's in her nature. She would have done that anyway. But this is where she out and out says, remember, this is part of it. Keep your mind strong. She knows because it already happened to her. So it makes sense that she is breaking up the fight because she's already had to learn that lesson. But it would have been nice to see that lesson earned on her own from the scene where she cast the spell instead of having it spelled out by Aslan after the fact. 
I'm fine with the speed in which Edmund and Caspian fight because had this been in the last film, they would have taken 15 minutes of useless dialogue to build to that moment. However, the issue with it, the pacing of it is fine, but you've done too much early on in building a bridge between the two of them where there is no feud, there is no rivalry, there's very little disagreement. So this seems rushed. Had you had a little bit of bickering, had you had a little bit of doubt between them earlier, this would have been just fine. The fact that you had none of that, I think that that's where this entire thing seems very rushed with their conflict. Fair. Then you get a little bit of a chance to breathe because not that that scene is too heavy, but you get this really great Eustace moment that lightens it up because he's wandering the island sort of muttering to himself and he's like seven steak knives and a talking lion. Uh, He's just fantastic. I I dare say that line was ad-libbed. It was just so good and so natural. It very well may have been. Um, And then we see... Eustace's downfall at his own hands because he is tempted by the gold but it's this payoff where it's revealed that he's the dragon it's so good. where he had to write it out it is brilliant as bad as the dragon CGI looks I just love that he picks up Edmund and shows that he is written out in fire I am Eustace it's such a great reveal it was perfect and I love that this is going to give Eustace a chance to not to not be useless. He's not useless Eustace. This is going to pay off down the road. And where it really does start to pay off is now this relationship with Reap grows a little bit. Because, you know, you have to keep in mind, even though Eustace has been a total brat this entire time, he is still just a kid. So everybody's sleeping and, you know, you see this giant dragon crying by the fire. And Reap goes over to comfort Eustace. And he delivers one of the greatest lines out of any of these three films, which is extraordinary things only happen to extraordinary people. The dialogue in this film is by far the best out of the three, which I hate even saying because the lion, the witch and the wardrobe is, is so beautifully written as a book. It shouldn't be outshined by this, but it totally is. I totally agree. The relationship is great. Um, Let's talk about Lillian Dill. She comes down from the star. She is a star. She's going to guide them. What I like about this is that you don't really know if you can trust her. Mm. And I wish they would have dragged that out just a little bit longer. Here I am sitting here saying, speed it up, speed it up, speed it up. And they did. But I'm saying you could have given her one more scene. Another minute or two where you don't know... Is she tempting them like the White Witch or is she legit? Right. Especially because Caspian and Edmund are so taken with her beauty out of the gate. That could have also been a lot of fun to see these two boys being duped because she is so pretty and she's falling for it. And this could have been another temptation. Um, That's what I'm thinking it may be the whole time. Exactly. And, and I also just would have loved to live in this scene a little bit longer because I love the set for Aslan's table. Um, and that also is part of where the temp- 
the temptation comes in because they think it's the food. Once they see um, Caspian's father's friends, they see three of them are just in this trance-like state. It's almost, it reminds me of part of the crew, part of the ship, where you see Bill Nighy becoming part of uh, of the ship in Pirates. Um, that's what I thought was happening here, but it turns out they're just under a spell that can be broken. Um, but I just would have liked to see a little bit more, whether they did write into the food is a temptation and the star is actually bad. I mean, I know that that's not, that's not how the story goes here. Um, but then give us the light scene, give us that, that scene in hook where they feast for a minute and there's all this, you know, crazy Narnian food and give us the, the lightheartedness for a moment. We get a rehash. I haven't brought this up in a long time. You get a rehash of Ghostbusters. Oh my gosh, how? What? What just popped in there, Ray? When Edmund's fear creates the serpent, he it's it's not that the serpent is a product of his fear per se. It is, but he chooses the form of the destructor. He chooses the sea serpent. Okay, now that you bring that up, I like it slightly better because I I hated this whole thing. It just felt so random and so forced. You know, the whole thing is them keeping their minds strong and fighting off the temptations. All of a sudden, he's like, oh, I'm sorry, guys. Why... What, this isn't a temptation. Why did this just pop into your head when you know it's going to happen? You know, just keep your mind empty. It, it would have been better if it was something the White Witch had created. And they got Tilda Swinton back. You had her. You could have done so much with her here. Um, you know, we've seen her control the snow. Why not see her control the seas? And, and that's what they have to battle. And then Edmund really would, it would have felt like a more complete arc because he finally does take her down. Instead, we get bad bargain CGI, bargain basement CGI sea monsters here. But we do get the moment of redemption for Eustace. And what I like here, this was a good battle and it was a quick battle. Had this been Disney... This scene would have lasted 20 minutes. Well, it did leading into it because you've got everybody doing this prep where um, we haven't really talked about uh, the B or C storyline where um, there's a stowaway on board. And she says to Lucy, I want to be just like you. Lucy has done nothing to earn that in this film. Lucy of the first two films, I absolutely buy it. She looks up to Lucy because of her faith. Now you've had Lucy trying to emulate her sister this entire time. So who does this girl really want to be like? She wants to be just like Susan. And yet Lucy gets the line just because Lucy is there. And this is where, again, if you had had Lucy grow up into a fighter or done something to show that she's just as strong a leader as Susan, then you earn this line. It, it means nothing. It was, you needed to beat a, a beat to show what Lucy's doing going into battle uh, where we do get the better line 
um, is when Edmund and Caspian say that they've always thought of each other as brothers. And that's a huge deal for Caspian because his family has been taken away from him. So I really like this idea of chosen family. Um, and then you get another great beat of repiping up Eustace again for this final fight, which, yeah, is over in a very nicely paced amount of time. So good prevails. The swords are laid. The white witch, the mist, it's gone. We bring everybody back who had been sacrificed to the mist. And now Aslan returns. And we're on the beach in front of the wave. This is Aslan's country. His country that is far away. He gives Caspian the opportunity to go. Caspian says no, because once he learns that if he goes, he cannot return, he decides he's going to stick around. This is another great line. He says, I spent too long wanting what was taken, not what was given. Great character arc. In in one line, great summary. Great exclamation point. But Reap decides he's going to go. Yeah. And lays down his sword. What a great moment for Reap. Yes. Sad to see him go. And the rest decide that they are not going to go because it is time for them to go home. And they learn that at least Edmund and Lucy will not be returning to Narnia. This is their final adventure in Narnia. Which is sort of interesting because they're not as old as Peter and Susan were on their last trip. And I feel like if Lucy's still hung up on being like her sister, there probably still is a lesson or two that needs to be learned. I like the fact that the windows left open for Eustace, but yeah, it, it seems like we wondered if Peter and Susan had learned enough to not come back. Edmund has clearly learned nothing, so I think the door's still open for him. And I think that by rights, the door would still be open by Lucy, or for Lucy, I should say. Um, very telling, very interesting that Aslan tells them, I am watching after you. Mm. You will see me again, young one, but you will know me by another name on the outside. And that's where a lot of people continued to draw the parallels to Christianity. And I think that, I think there, there is at one point, doesn't Caspian say, is my father there talking about the kingdom? And, yes. and Aslan says, yes. yes, he is. Yep. So they're very much alluding to that being heaven, that being the afterlife, and that the the Pevensey children are being watched after by another name. They don't out and out say it, but I know that in doing some research and what the response was to this film the response to this film mixed from the critics though they seem to like it more than the second film and for the people that were fans of the original book series and specifically those who do find the parallels between the original story and Christianity they seem to think that this was a, an appropriate conclusion and, and more true to the original story than perhaps the second one was. Yes and no. I like that we got this more obvious cue because we had picked to do 
the Narnia trilogy now because Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is a Christmas movie. And I feel like we have gotten so far removed from that in the second and third film. Forget the fact that there's no snow. Um, With Caspian's story in the second one, because it really is more of a character-driven film, you do lose all of those parallels. So I like that we've come full circle in the sense of we are alluding back to Christianity. It does tie to Christmas. Um, So I can appreciate that. But what I don't like is that it sort of unravels the Pevensey children's entire story and all of their arcs because what you're saying is I needed you to know me now. You know me by a different name in your world. It kind of makes it sound like they didn't believe and that they had gone astray. And that wasn't the case at all. They were in a traumatic situation, but I feel like you did need to tie that back more to, I know you've been through hell living through the war and you questioned your faith, but I'm here to show you, you should believe you you've seen it now. Take that back into the real world with you. They didn't tie that up enough. And I feel like not only did they not tie it up, I feel like it's sort of, undid the characters because it's not like they were bad people that needed to be sort of called back and put on the straight and narrow. I wonder how much of that is Disney not wanting to touch Christianity, in which case you shouldn't have gotten the distribution rights to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, And how much of it is that the second film is so poorly written and is so detached from the source material that you naturally lost that. I don't know enough about the source material, admittedly, to speak on its behalf, but I think it's completely possible, given the harsh criticism of the second film from fans of the book series and those that do find the links between the story and Christianity, I'm kind of led to believe that we would have seen a through line here if the second movie would have been truer to the source material. And I and I, I know for a fact that it's not. Well, not just that, but if we're just keeping it to the movies, I've said the past couple of weeks, the, the whole thing with these kids' trauma is that they were taken out of one war and placed in another. So all that they had to do was write to that, is that you've seen horrors in reality, you've seen horrible things here, but you've triumphed, you've come out on top, you never lost your faith. He can't say that to Lucy because she's done nothing to act on that in this third film. So they just needed something to tie them all together. Because otherwise, I feel like as a series, this is very cohesive. You just lost that that one thread, which is a pretty major thread to lose. Let's talk about two members of the cast, because there are two that are standouts. This is very much the same cast that we've had. I want to start with a recast, though. I want to talk about Simon Pegg as Reap. Eddie Izzard played him in the first film. It was good. Very good. Um, Well, second film of Narnia, first film for Reap. For for Reap. Simon Pegg was unbelievable, though. He gave this character a depth that we needed. 
I think he gave the film depth that it needed. And I think that this was a proper recast, and I think that they were better for it. No shade thrown at Eddie Izzard. I could not agree more. And I think that that's not only a testament to Simon Pegg's performance, but also the writing here. Because I said last week, I was sick of the running joke, and I didn't find it funny at all. Yes, I'm a mouse, and I can sword fight. They managed to give this character so much more depth and so much more to do. So I love that they wrote to that, but I think Simon Pegg's performance just knocked it out of the park. And that's why for a character that I hardly cared about in the second one, by the time his story ends in the third, I had a lump in my throat. I would agree. Um, Will Poulter. I, mean, I can't say what I want to say because what I said to you when I was watching this, I texted you. Will Poulter's line in Where the Millers, if you know, you know. It's not something I can repeat right now. Um, just unbelievable. Like when he was in that movie, he was so funny. I was like, where did they find this kid? Where did he come from? And I thought it was a case of, you know, he just hit the jackpot and sort of... It, it was his first big hit. I had no idea he was a child actor. And now I totally get why Disney came back around to him for Marvel, for Guardians. Um, he's just so fantastic. Just played this role with a maturity beyond his years. He got all of the comedy beats. He got all of the deep emotional beats when he needed to. Like It is unbelievable how young he was and how much he balanced this character and I dare say that Eustace is not just one of my favorite characters from Narnia I would say second to Mr. Tumnus he is my favorite out of this entire trilogy he's one of my favorites in the Disney canon forget it Will Poulter's going to win an Oscar someday he, absolutely it, just, it has it absolutely it's written all over him he's going to do it he's, you know what he's going to do it for the biopic of Bobby Driscoll because they look so much alike. They got to get working on this soon because he's going to age out of it. Sorry, go ahead. Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, scene stealer, absolutely fantastic. Carried a lot of weight in the film, was, was a fantastic addition. Final thoughts on the voyage of the Dawn Treader. Final thoughts on the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm going to go first on this one. I think that this film leaps and bounds better than the second film. I think it's a better written film. I love the fact that we have a runtime under two hours. It's an easy digestible film. I think that it does feel like a different series. I think part of that is the story is very different than what we've seen. I think handing over to another studio obviously had an effect on it but I still think that it's the second best in the series do I think that Fox made a better film than Disney did no because the lion the witch in the wardrobe is the best film of the trilogy but I do think that Fox cleaned up a lot of the mess and a lot of the shortcoming that you did find 
in the first two films, more so in the second than in the first. As a total trilogy, do I enjoy it? It's fine. I love the first mil- uh, first film. I really don't care for the second one all that much. And this one to me is better. It's very much in the middle. And am, am I going to go back and revisit the trilogy? Probably not that often. Will I go revisit the first one? Absolutely. Um, do I think it's better than Harry Potter? Yeah, because I think those movies are unwatchably bad from start to finish. I can't say that about these. Do I think it's better than any of these other fantastical series that we've had? No. I I mean, I don't think it's better than Pirates of the Caribbean. I think that it's just... It's there. It's in the middle. It's fine. I, I That's kind of where I live here. First film, spectacular. Series, it's fine. I agree with most of what you've said, although we're never going to agree on Harry Potter. Uh, and I really disagree with what you said about Pirates being a fantastical film. No, Pirates is action-adventure. Um the Narnia series was fantasy, I think, up until this one. This was a fantasy, and I think it bled into the action-adventure genre a little bit more than the, its predecessors. Um, what impressed me most about this third film is that it managed to get all of the charm of the first Narnia movie even though you didn't have all four Pavensi kids. Because the first time we sat down to watch this, I was like, are Peter and Susan going to be in this at all? How are they going to navigate this? Um, And I didn't think it was charming on first watch, but on second watch, once I really paid more attention to that Reap relationship with Eustace and the Caspian-Edmund relationship, um, I found a lot of that charm that we loved about the first one. I wouldn't say it's on equal ground because Mr. Tumnus and the Beavers really put it over the top. Um, And I think part of it is also just the setting and the Christmas feels and, you know, Father Christmas is in it. So it's not going to be as good in that regard, but they managed to recover a lot of what I thought was going to be missing. Um, I think the writing was significantly better in this one uh, than the first two. Um, And I think it tied it up pretty nicely, despite the fact that they clearly didn't know if they were going to continue with this series or not. So being that they didn't for now, uh, I think that they left it in a good place. Well, we are interested in knowing what you have to say about the Chronicles of Narnia, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and as a whole, the series. You can let us know on X, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. Hey, everyone. This is Brian down here in South Florida. I'm about two hours south of Disney, and when it comes to planning vacations, Jackie's the way to go. When it came to booking my family vacation for my two-year-old daughter and my wife, 
you know, like everybody, I immediately went to the internet, started scouting prices. Just out of curiosity, I reached out to Jackie. She mentioned she was uh, booking vacations for many people. So I gave her my uh, list, my itinerary. She looked it over, and when she came back to me, she gave me her recommendations in regards to the parks. However, she also had new pricing associated with it. Um, I've learned that going on my own doesn't necessarily mean that I'll be getting the best pricing. On top of that, it was stress-free, so all my vacations in the future are gonna be through her because I don't have to think about it. She plans it, I give her some information in regards to what I wanna do and create the itinerary for me. She's a market expert. She advised on which rides to attack first, which restaurants I should schedule on what day, and how to properly allocate my time to maximize my vacation. It was an amazing process. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. So if you are interested in completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio, or you can email me directly, monorealradio at gmail.com. So the second annual Children and Family Emmys took place over this last weekend, and the Walt Disney Company walked away with 20 three awards you'd hope so in children's entertainment you would but i think some of the wins kind of take you by surprise um specifically we want to talk about two films well one of them is not a film the series the winner for children or family viewing series named the best and I am so happy for Adam F. Goldberg. The Muppets Mayhem wins an Emmy. Let's cancel it. This was so bittersweet. I mean, they had already announced that it was canceled before the win. But I would think that you knew about your nomination at that point and you still canceled it. So it just goes to show I mean, it's exactly what we said. They finally figured out what to do with the Muppets and how to bring them back and make it work. And it's critically acclaimed and pretty publicly acclaimed because people were talking about this. I mean, I, did it have as many views as, you know, Loki or your Marvel content or the Mandalorian? Probably not. But like you can't compare your viewership to that. If it did well and people were liking it, it should not have been canceled. So I'm at least glad that it got this kind of recognition. This is the problem with Hollywood today in general. Cheers. It lives in infamy as one of the most accomplished, beloved, successful sitcoms of all time. If Cheers came out today, it would not have made it past the first season. Because do you know in Cheers' first season, it didn't crack the top 50. But It didn't crack the top 50. But they gave it a chance. They gave it time because they believed in the process. They believed in the writing. They believed in the story, in the characters. Things get nominated, win Emmy Awards, and get canceled. Because there's a long history Gary Unmarried wins People's Choice for Best New Comedy. It's rewarded with a cancellation. Bleep My Dad Says with William Shatner. Brilliant. Nominated Brilliant. for a People's Choice for Best New Series. And I think it got nominated Emmy for Best New Series. It was rewarded with a cancellation. The number obsession in Hollywood is a problem. 
and they don't give shows enough time to breathe, to develop. And the Muppets Mayhem, we said, this is great. Disney's going to cancel it. We said it as soon as it was done. Not because it wasn't good, but because we you, you, the writing was on the wall. They don't know what to do with the Muppets. So they canceled the Muppets sitcom that was on ABC a few years ago, right as it was hitting its stride. They almost canceled the Goldbergs. That's ABC's most successful sitcom in the last decade. Ten almost, seasons. Almost didn't make it past season one. Here's what really gripes me, though. To your point, you need to give things a chance to find their audience. That is what worked with cable because there was just simply less content. So you needed to wait for shows to generate a little bit of buzz, a little bit of word of mouth, and they're just not doing that anymore. Once you don't hit these numbers, it's boom, you're canceled, on to the next. The Muppets are an insanely popular IP, and you're general public is pounding the table for new content and no more IPs and no more sequels, but you have an IP that is tried and true that people want. The one thing that we do want to see beaten to death, you're not giving us and you're not giving us a chance. It just doesn't make any sense. Guardians of the Galaxy, the holiday special, won four Emmys. This was a shock. Not because they don't deserve them, but that it's considered children. Because I thought this was written for us. It was rewarded the Emmy for the best fictional special. It also won for costuming, for stunt work, and for makeup. That that I totally buy. I didn't see this one coming, but I love it. And I love that it's getting recognized this is officially, not that it wasn't at the time because we said it last year, it's officially a holiday classic. It will live in infamy as one of the best, absolute best holiday specials out there. It is. It was brilliant. It it just took everything that you love about Guardians and exploited it in the best way possible. All the Emmys, all congrats to Kevin Bacon. Just... <laughs> Amazing. Some more news out of the MCU, and we're going to make this brief because we're going to move on. Jonathan Majors has been fired. He's been convicted. He's been found guilty of assault and of harassment in front of a jury. What a waste of talent. What an utter waste of talent. Jonathan Majors was up. Some people are a space shuttle. And some people are a bottle rocket. Jonathan Majors was a bottle rocket who should have been a space shuttle. It's such a shame. And, I mean, a lot of people wonder, what does this mean for the MCU? Do you scrap it and start over? Or do you just recast? The thing, I don't really know what the right answer is because this sends the MCU into years of disarray. Considering how much you've already invested in it, to me it would just make sense to recast the role. No one's going to hold it against you. But do they look at this as an opportunity to scrap it all? Say we're going to put a... Well, we should put a 10-year hold on it, but it's Disney, so you'll put a 2-year hold on it. And reboot everything. I'd love to believe they just recast and keep going. But I think they're going to look at this as an opportunity to go... 
Reboot! Meh, meh, meh. And that's going to be it. That's what I think they're going to do. Um, I don't know. This could go either way. I mean, uh, is he a horrible person? Yes, but I'm not going to sit here and say that he wasn't incredible in his role as Kang. And I was really excited to see what they were going to do and what they were building to as the new big bad. Um, I think that the way that they play so loosely with the multi multiverse and that, you know, characters that we think are gone have the ability to come back. I think recasting is the obvious way to go. Um, but I would be really interested to see instead of rebooting, rewriting to the card that you're dealt with and, you know, seeing how you can build out of this. What I'm more interested to know than anything else, because we have finally watched Loki season two, which we liked significantly better than the first season. And we're going to talk about that more in depth next week when we do our year in review. Um, I'm curious as to how this affected Loki because Clearly, they were playing with the flashback and, um, you know, I'm just wondering if that was all written for Loki ahead of time or if they were trying to limit the screen time for his character as much as humanly possible. So here's the thing. The way that, without spoiling anything, the way that Loki ended leaves the door open for the MCU to become very Loki-centric. Mm -hmm. The problem is Tom Hiddleston has already said he's not returning. Now, that could all change. Money talks and BS walks. Yeah. But, it, I mean, but to be fair, he's been playing Loki for 14 years. If he wants to move on and grow, and he has because he's taken on other roles of substance, but it could be that he feels like the story is told and he has nothing to offer anymore. The way that it ends, it can end... Well, the way that Loki season two ends is the storyline can end or it can keep going. We don't know which one it is yet. That's kind of the brilliance of it is that in either way, you've left it in a good place. Um, but he seems like he's done. So it's Disney. We're going to say we don't need rebrands and reboots and sequels. We need new stories. They're going to reboot this entire thing in less than five years. That's what's going to happen. I don't want it to. I want it recast. I want you to continue with Kang. And I want you to pay off on everything that you've already set up. They're going to reboot this entire thing. I'm less concerned with Loki. What I really have to do is give Quantum Mania a rewatch. Because when we saw that, I had said to you, I like this less as a uh cap on the ant-man trilogy and more as an introduction to kang and i think that that's what is affected more even than loki moving on um let's move into some parks news something something bro literally as we were getting ready to sit down broke uh the return of the little mermaid the stage show over at disney's hollywood studios titled the little mermaid a musical adventure uh, it's been shut down for quite some time. People wondered exactly what it was going to turn into. It was very much stuck in the 90s. Um, and supposedly they have new sets, cutting edge effects, uh, and a bold new design that you will get to see in the newly refreshed Animation Courtyard Theater in, typical Disney standard, fall 2024. 
Okay, well, that's sooner than I thought it was going to be. You know, at least it's not like coming early 2025. That sort of narrows it down a little bit. But I'm excited for this for a couple of reasons. Um, Number one, I thought this was going the way of the great movie ride and the backlot tour. I was afraid that this was going to be, I wouldn't say that this is quite the MGM staple that those two attractions were, but I thought this was going to sort of be one of those things where people felt it was dated and it was time to move on. It was dated in the sense of the technology. So I'm really glad to see that they are rehabbing it and modernizing it instead of just doing away with it altogether. But what's really interesting to me, I think that there is also something to be said for these live action remakes because you could have gotten rid of it and instead you are reviving it. Why? Because Little Mermaid matters to a whole new generation at this point because the live action was so good. Um, So I think it's interesting that this is going to see a second life because they had success with their remake. But I think that this is going to stay centered around the animated version since it's still in the animation theater. I do believe based on the screen grab that we have, the the, uh, concept art, which of course can change, It seems like they're sticking with the animated classic, but I think that the success of the live action shows that this is still a very viable IP. You know, not because the the, the hundreds of thousands of dollars you make every year selling merchandise, that wasn't enough. I, I don't think that this was ever really a threat to go away. I am a little surprised that they're not taking this as an opportunity to be like, Encanto. Coco. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Frozen. Which leads Well, they me... already have the Frozen show there, but you can see what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I, I thought the same thing. And Let's that... throw Bruno at it. <laughs> that leads me to my next point. I hope that this is part A of an entire rehab to the animation courtyard, which will return us back to our MGM roots a little bit more. Go away, we have enough Star Wars. I think that we've learned more recently that Disney is listening to guest surveys. So fingers crossed. Um, Let's talk about changes coming in the next couple of weeks to the reservation system. This was kind of a surprise. I can't. I, here's my thing. I'm having a problem keeping track of some of this because I find it at times to be a little confusing. But it's really only confusing if you're an annual pass holder. For those who are resort guests with dated tickets... Things are going back to normal on January 9th, where if you have dated tickets, you don't need park reservations to get into a park. Right. For annual pass holders, you will still need a reservation to enter the Magic Kingdom on Saturdays and Sundays. You will need a reservation to enter a park prior to 2 p.m. Right. After 2 p.m., you can just At go. every other park, you can just go unless it's Magic Kingdom on Saturdays and Sundays. Starting on January 9th, all-day park hopping is available. As of right now, you can only do it after 2 p.m. as a pass holder. You can do it all day, but you have to scan into the first park in which you have a reservation before you can park hop if you are an annual pass holder. That's fair. 
That that was always the rule. Now start right. Now starting on January 11th, they are rolling out what is called good to go days. Right. Which are days where you as an annual pass holder are quote unquote good to go. Meaning and these are subject to blackouts based on your level of annual pass. You can go to a park all day on specified days without having a park reservation. I'm not really sure exactly what the benefit is of that, because if you want to go to a park, it's been fairly easy to get reservations. So I don't really know what benefit a good-to-go day really is, especially because, and this is from Disney, through the Orlando Sentinel. So it's not, you know, mickeynews.com or whatever third-party site this is a reliable source. No, and we got the email uh, through through the Disney travel agents. You may find out days in advance when your good-to-go dates are. You might find out weeks in advance when your good-to-go dates are. So in other words, they're trying to bring in people on slow days. But if it's slow, we can get a park reservation anyway. I'm not... I, I'm not sure what the purpose of a good-to-go date is. I'm wondering if the good-to-go is going to take precedence or take over for the bonus days. Because you do as annual pass holders, again, depending on your level of annual pass, Mm -hmm. there's only a certain amount of reservations you can have up to one point in time. It could be three. It could be five. It's all based on your level of AP. And then you get bonus days where you can make a park reservation and it doesn't count against your your reservations. So you may have five or six going at a time. I, I think to me, the, the all day park hopping is bigger news than the good to go dates because that can literally change your entire day. So, I mean... But but this only affects annual pass holders. If you're a resort guest, you know, it's back to normal. It's back to the way things were. Yeah, to me, the good-to-go dates never really made sense, or, or I thought that they were going to be kind of obsolete after January 9th anyway. Um, the only thing that I can think of, and I'm not sure if there would even be a way to do this, is if they are trying to reward pass holders where maybe if they see attendance is low when you're supposed to be blocked out, Maybe they are going to fire out an email where it's, you're good to go. We'll kick back one of your blackout dates. But to do that in a way that's fair to each tier of pass, I'm not sure how that would even make sense. I mean, if I was uh, in credit pass, I'd be flipping. Exactly. Exactly. And it if you're not a Florida resident and you're you find out you're getting a day kicked back and you can't travel in for it, like that's where it wouldn't really be fair to everyone. So I'm I'm reaching here, admittedly, but I just don't understand of why you would really need to to keep this and and still have it named good to go when we really don't need it anymore. Well, let me ask you this. We've lived here almost two years. We've been Disney annual pass holders now for two years. Other than our blackout dates, which we knew ahead of time when we purchased our annual passes, have we ever been shut out of getting a park reservation on any day that we wanted to go to that specific park? No. 
So that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm not sure what these good-to-go dates are. And and frankly, if you're giving me a good-to-go date on the day where the park's already packed, like, let's say a park would be at capacity by reservation standards. Now you're telling me I don't need a reservation? Why would I want to go anyway? That's the other thing. I was going to say, I'm not good to go on those days. Yeah, I'm days. not good to go. There's a reason that we didn't pay for the Incredipass. It's because we are happy to not be there during the crowds. During the peak seasons. But... I mean, look, I think that this is a way of them slowly getting away from the reservation system. It doesn't seem like it has a benefit other than they're pitching the idea that you can come without a reservation. Whether it be on one of these specified dates or whether it be after 2 p.m., I mean, it it is what it is. I, I, I am glad, though, that this, like, if you seem confused listening to us talk through it, it's because it's it's sort of been a seesaw. A lot of it comes from speculation. A, come, a lot of it comes from Disney kind of not always being clear about what the reservation system was going to be for an annual pass holder. I can't imagine what this would be like as a resort guest who's vacationing here where they're getting used to having to use the app. And and things are not as easy as they were back in the day. You know, for the families that it is their once-in-a-lifetime trip, maybe they haven't been here since the 90s, and this all seems very overwhelming. I'm at least glad for their sake that what is already kind of a stressful, you know, situation to be in in terms of planning, I'm glad that they are alleviated of this reservation system because it did cause some chaos in the past when they had rolled it out initially. Well, regardless, that's why you should use a certified Disney travel agent so that it is less confusing. We are interested in knowing what you have to say about the news this week. You can let us know on X, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. If you do celebrate the holiday, Merry Christmas to you. Have a safe and happy holiday. And we are going to be back next week with our year in review from a very special location. You're going to have to sit back and wait for that. But you can imagine that we are going to be somewhere on Disney property. And that's going to be very exciting. I always love when we take the show on the road and do it from a Disney property. With a margarita. With a margarita. For sure. Um, Don't forget to follow us on that social media. X, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, threads at Monoreal Radio for links to everything related to the show including where you can subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. That is all online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.